Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Uh, Today we have a special guest, Dr. Edward Poe, the medical director for the Compass Young Adult Program at the Menninger Clinic. Uh, Dr. Poe is the assistant professor at the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Poe leads a multidisciplinary treatment team for the Compass Program. He and his treatment team assess and treat young adults from ages 18 to 30 who have major psychiatric disorders that may be complicated by chemical dependency or personality disorder. Dr. Poe serves on the Menninger Clinic's medical staff executive committee, which oversees medical staff policies and medical care, and the safety infection control committee. He also chairs the pharmacy and therapeutic community, which works with the in-house pharmacy to set medication policy. Dr. Poe began his psychiatric residency in the Carl Menninger School of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences while Menninger operated in Kansas. While in the program, he was awarded a distinguished Seeley Fellowship. Dr. Poe completed the final two years of his residency in 2003 in the Baylor College of Medicine's General Adult Psychiatric Residency Program. In 2002, Baylor College of Medicine honored Dr. Poe with a Psychiatry Resident Teaching Award. Dr. Poe holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in Biomedical Engineering from Northwestern University and a medical degree from Northwestern University Medical School. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and Adult Psychiatry. Dr. Poe is also active in the Houston Psychiatric Society, Texas Society of Psychiatric Physicians, and American Psychiatric Association. Welcome, Dr. Poe. Thank you for taking time to talk with us about this unique um, age group that presents many challenges as well as opportunities for uh, treatment. Yes, thank you very much for uh, having me here. Uh, I'm, I'm actually thrilled to be able to to meet with you and, and, and talk about this this population of uh, young adults and, and kind of the, some of the, actually a lot of the struggles that they that they have to deal with as they try to get psychiatric care as well as substance abuse care. Some of the struggles that I have noticed um, is that this is an age group that doesn't really fit into adolescent treatment and they don't really fit into adult treatment. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, completely true. It's it's actually how the uh, the Compass Young Adult Program got started. Um, you know, originally, I think at Menninger as well as I think at most other institutions, that there's often a an adolescent or child program, and there's there's different adult programs. And this was true at Menninger also that there was an adolescent program where people were if they were eight, seventeen, or younger. And then for adults, uh, there are really two main programs they might go to. Uh, there was there's a program that was for adults eighteen and above who might struggle with more chronic mental illness, and then one for uh, what we consider professionals or the PIC program. Uh, so oftentimes uh, people in, in middle age or later who are struggling with professional issues, family issues, and we're overall uh, more higher functioning. Um, and what we found was we would have these uh, 18 to 25 or 30-year-old individuals who would come in and, and had a hard time fitting on either side. Um, you know, They often didn't have the kind of, you know, a history that was really consistent with chronic mental illness at the time since they were fairly young. Um, And they might also be quite high-functioning in many ways. They might be in college, heading into college, coming out of college, 
during their first career, and they didn't really fit in on a professional's program either. And this was true both in individual work, but also especially in group work. You know, you would have a, a group setting where uh, older adults might be talking about uh, significant relationship or marriage issues, career issues, uh, struggles with their um, maybe their their more elderly parents or their own children, and we would have young adults in these groups who just could not relate at all, and they might talk about their issues, which were you know kind of coming of age issues, issues with peers, issues with defining themselves, and the older adults couldn't relate to me either, and this really kind of created havoc in the groups. So, so it is true that they often, you know, don't really fit in well with these kind of traditional demarcations between adolescent and adult treatment, but they're really somewhere in between. And often because they don't fit in well, they may get misdiagnosed or mischaracterized. Oh, yeah. Because the program doesn't really um, developmentally meet their needs. Yes. Um, that's actually absolutely true. Um, you know, one of the things about this particular age group is that uh, it is a time of huge changes. Um, and and I think for, for, for such for parents or just anyone who knows a kind of an adolescent or a young adult is that their kind of moods and uh, how they're doing might just vary from day to day. You know, I think, you know, in, in the U.S. We, we pick 18 or sometimes 21, but really 18 is, is the age when they become adults. And uh, that's true in the hospital setting, too. I think by, by state regulations, uh, you know, adolescents go up to 17 years and 364 days. And as soon as they hit 18 years of age, they need to be in an adult unit. But I think, as, as we all know, that at that magical you know, hour of midnight on their 18th birthday doesn't mean that they're suddenly adults, that they're you know, fully equipped to take care of the responsibilities of an adult, think long-term, but rather that for many years before and after that, they can kind of go back and forth. There might be days or hours when they can really be very thoughtful and, and act very maturely, much more so than their uh, chronological age, but then other days when they might have the coping skills and the thought patterns of a 12- or 13-year-old. So they, they go back quite a they go back and forth quite a bit depending on how they're feeling that day, what kind of current stressors are going on, so on and so forth. And this really uh, creates a lot of difficulties, I think, in the, in the diagnostic process because, you know, the same kind of mood swings and, uh, you know, kind of maybe preoccupation with relationships or kind of just kind of general moodiness uh, that can be a, a regular part of a lot of kind of adolescents' lives could also be mistaken for kind of bipolar disorder or depression for for some uh, if, if you're looking at an older adult. Um, and then, of course, another thing that confounds this whole issue is that uh, around this age, you know, coming out of high school, early adulthood, is also when a lot of psychiatric disorders are first developing or first really uh, flourishing or maybe even going to, you experience this kind of fluctuation of symptoms. You know, one example might be an individual who is uh, maybe struggling with the first signs of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder around this age. What would those signs be for? Oh, yeah. um, So, for example, let's take uh, a patient with uh, or a young adult with... uh, who may be having developing schizophrenia? You know, 
at first they may just have some symptoms that might look like depression, you know, maybe some what we call dysphoria or sadness, some withdrawal from family and friends, um, some difficulties with sleep, maybe some, maybe gradually some maybe bizarre behaviors, um, some maybe strange or erratic beliefs about things that are going around, there. maybe some paranoia. But these things don't happen overnight. So they, they might actually develop over the course of uh, months, you know, weeks or months. And, of course, if you're catching them when they're first starting to have these symptoms, they might be diagnosed with depression or, uh, or you know, dysthymia. And then, you know, later on maybe, maybe some paranoia or if, or if they're having some agitation with it, maybe bipolar disorder. Same thing with bipolar disorder itself. You know, young adults or late adolescents might have a period of depression first, or they might have a period of uh, of uh, what looks like hypomania if you're looking at an older adult, you know, uh, less sleep, more energy, uh, staying up into the wee hours of the, of the morning, you know, doing things, maybe playing video games, going out. And so th- those might be symptoms that... And a lot of young adults, for some parents, might look normal, uh, you know, because I think young adults do stay up pretty late at times, and, and it may also cloud the diagnosis in terms of missing symptoms. So I think you can have either way, which is uh, that symptoms might be, that might be kind of over, yep, uh, you might have symptoms that are overanalyzed uh, or, or kind of people might think are over-indicative of uh, psychiatric illness when there might be part of the normal developmental age or other, or that symptoms might be overlooked or that may be mistaken for other disorders. And then that all gets complicated by substance use or misuse. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, I think parents often have uh, an overconfident sense that they know if their children are using or experimenting or not. And what we find is that that's, it's, it's very rare that a patient would really have an accurate view of how much or if their children are using drugs at all. When we come back from our break, we'll talk a little bit more about um, the development of uh, mental illness in this group that is complicated by substance use or misuse. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's Channel channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We have as our guest today Dr. Ed Poe from the Menninger Clinic, Compass Young Adult Program, and we are talking a little bit about how challenging and um, complicated treatment of folks from the ages of 18 to, to 30 can be because of developmental issues, substance use, and just the um, gradual development of, of mental illness. And um, we were talking a little bit before the break about how this gets complicated by substance use, but I also just want to talk a little bit about, you were saying earlier how we have this arbitrary number of 18 when you become adult, but when, in fact, does the brain actually mature and become, um, you know, when does our reasoning actually mature and develop? Yeah. Um, much later, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Um, you know, what, what what we see, I think, in, in a lot of kind of more of the, the later or the latest research in terms of brain development and kind of critical functioning is that uh, a lot of the, 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 the brain's ability to process kind of feelings, feelings, emotions, really kind of come into their own uh, kind of in, in kind of mid to late adolescence. But the, the kind of ability to kind of reason, to really kind of calm down some of the emotional centers, um, to think logically and kind of plan things out, don't really come into, you know, I think kind of full full strength or full development until maybe something in the in the maybe early to mid-20s, and maybe for some, you know, maybe in the late 20s. So what you have then is this, is this really kind of over-functioning in, in some ways of kind of the, the emotional centers of, of the brain, uh, whereas you don't have, you have maybe some of the, what we call the executive functioning, the, the kind of decision-making and planning ahead centers, you know, that come into late, being later. And if you think about this, you know, I think it, 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 you can actually kind of back this up from just kind of personal experience. I think for most people, if they think back to their teenage years, that, uh, you know, the first time they fell in love, uh, the kind of the, the late-night discussions that people have or, you know, high school and college students have with their, their friends and peers about politics, ideals, about the world, those are really just, I mean, very kind of emotional, very kind of heartfelt topics. And that as you get older, that a lot more kind of reason what kind of logic kind of comes into it. And, and I think you also have this kind of disparity between, uh, you know, I think young adults and adolescents who kind of look at uh, older adults and think, you know, how did they become, you know, so cynical about things or kind of so coldly logical. And you have older adults who I think look at young adults and say, well, I kind of remember, but it's hard to, to really fully remember, you know, just how emotional, you know, I think I could get or, or other people that age could get. So that that definitely is true that, that that there's this lag of kind of the, the more practical aspects of uh, brain functioning behind the emotional centers. So we have a brain that hasn't fully developed or matured, and we have uh, this person in treatment more than likely with, with older people. But how does the effect of substance use or misuse affect this whole process? Yeah, an amazing amount. Um, you know, I, I think uh, 
and, and I think that happens actually on on a variety of different levels. Let's let's kind of start out by just by the effects it has on the individual themselves. Um, you know, one issue is we can talk about some of the physical effects. You know, depending on whatever drug that you're using, um, it, it can have, you know, anywhere from kind of temporary to maybe in, in the use of, of some drugs of use, you know, really kind of permanent or chronic effects on the brain. And with those, we're, we're talking a lot of times about things like inhalants or other uh, drugs that can actually cause, you know, some kind of vascular damage like cocaine to the developing brain. So this is, this is actually of, of significant concern because, as we talked about a little bit just a couple of minutes ago, that the brain is still developing. Um, so this is obviously a vulnerable time for the brain that any kind of insults or injuries to the brain can can have a lasting effect. But also we, we also want to think about just kind of the emotional or kind of personal development of, of, of individuals as they go through this time that they're using drugs. Um, you know, I, I think a one way to look at it, and it, it may be oversimplified, but it but it's an it's an it's a it's a I guess a structural way to look at it is that you know people will say that once you start using drugs, you you essentially kind of stop developing or stop maturing. And I think to a certain degree that is true for this age range. That um, this period of adolescence and young adulthood, people are growing by leaps and bounds. They're testing out new relationships. They're being in new relationships. They're, they're developing their own self-identity. They're also learning things at a huge pace, both academically as well as socially. Uh, they're also you know, trying out a lot of new experiences, striking out on their own. Uh, and these are things that they learn, but also help shape how they see themselves, whether they see themselves as confident, successful, able to adapt, or that they are not able to kind of cope with the stresses of the world. And I think when you throw druggies into it, it obviously uh, is, 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 a, is a huge negative factor that it uh, compromises their ability to function but also takes them out of um, a lot of these experiences, um, maybe uh, places them in situations where they experience a lot of very negative uh, experiences. So that might be anything from just the people that they're hanging out with um, to maybe place them at very high risk for trauma. Um, so, so these are kind of issues that, that go on, too. Another thing that, you know, this, that the issue of substance abuse really impacts the young adult is that it really uh, uh, confounds uh, the diagnostic and treatment process. Um, you know, what we have are, uh, with this age group is that they can often be distrustful of um, health care providers. Uh, they can be distrustful of their parents, or they can just, they're often very scared of actually disclosing you know, what they might or might not be using. And so their treaters don't have a very good idea of what they're maybe using or not. And this can play diagnostic havoc because, uh, you know, severe mood swings or feelings of dysphoria or depression or just being very up, uh, a clinician might interpret those things as being ADHD, as being depression, bipolar disorder, whatever. And if they don't know if someone is actually using substances and those are actually the root cause of the, of the symptoms, then they might be placed with a label that is very hard to kind of escape or change later. 
It also leads to treatment. Uh, they might be treated with medications that are inappropriate, that might have significant side effects, but really have no beneficial effects if the diagnosis is not correct. And then, of course, even if the diagnosis is correct, um, most medications will have very little uh, effect or will be blocked from having effect if they're actually using substances. And then we can also then finally think about therapy, you know, whether it's group therapy, individual therapy, uh, that it's going to be very hard to actually get benefit from it, to actually be present in the moment if uh, someone is under the influence of, uh, of mood-altering substances that actually uh, prevents them from using those, those periods. How do you differentiate that then? How do you make the diagnosis? What kind of assessments do you use? Yeah. Um, well, I think the ideal way you do it is uh, to have a lot of collateral information and, and a lot of monitoring. Um, you know, I think on, on the on the Compass program, we're we're really very fortunate to have a lot of resources. So, in our, you know, I wouldn't say it's ideal, but it's probably closer to ideal than than most. Uh, places would have is that we actually see them 24 hours a day. You know, they actually live here for, for some period of time. So we are actually able to see and actually monitor, you know, are they actually using any substances or not. Um, we can also watch them as they, if they are using, as they go through this period of, of okay, uh, we can actually monitor them uh, if to make sure that they don't have any withdrawal symptoms, but to, to see how their symptoms might change both on and off substances. We do things like uh, urine drug screens to, to make sure that they are not anything or, if, or to test for the possibility of any substances uh, that's, that may be used. Uh, we also talk extensively with, with the parents as well as former treaters and other sources that are available to see what the clinical picture has been over the past, you know, several years. Um, if there's been any suspicion or hint of substance abuse or if there's any correlation between mood swings with periods of substance use. You know, I think for the outpatient treater, these are things that are a little more difficult, but I think are, are, are possible to a great extent great extent also. So making sure you get urine drug screens, you really kind of keep your ear to the ground for any kind of erratic or, or strange behavior that might be coming up. We'll be right back to talk with Dr. Poe some more about the uh, challenges and opportunities of treating people between the age of 18 and 30. We'll be right back. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. 
Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Edward Poe, the medical director for the Compass Young Adult Program at the Menninger Clinic. And what we're talking about are the um, the complications and opportunities and challenges of working with uh, individuals between the ages of 18 and 30. And, Dr. Poe, you were talking about how um, substance use and misuse can really complicate the clinical picture. And, and we were also talking earlier about how um, the brain doesn't really mature to the mid to late 20s. And, and at the COMPASS program, you work with folks that both have major mental illness and personality disorders. And maybe you could just differentiate a little bit for our audience between what would characterize major mental illness and how that person would present versus someone with a personality disorder. Okay. Um, it's, this is actually a, a, a great question because I think it's something that's, that's actually very difficult to do at times, uh, especially given the... I think uh, that the snapshot that you might get of a of an individual coming in for treatment on an outpatient setting. Um, I do want to make a comment about kind of the, the issue of kind of major mental illness as well as versus that of of, of personality disorders. You know, I think in in, in the DSM four and as we've kind of come to conceptualize it, that uh, that you know what we call our access one disorders are often our major mental illness, and then we have the access to disorders, which are um, our personality disorders. And I think uh, what's, what I think what's becoming more and more apparent, especially over time, is that uh, while they may be on different axes, that lots of personality disorders can be just as debilitating, if not more so in some ways, than some of the uh, disorders that we put on access one or we, you know, I think term major mental disorders. That but are funded I, better. <laughs> And that have better sources of funding. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think, and I think, of course, over the years, there's been a lot of stigma and, and countertransference, uh, you know, associated with uh, access to or the the personality disorders. Too. So I think, but I think, with with increased research and, and, and funding and also greater just understanding and knowledge, um, I think things are actually changing very rapidly. And I think that's actually been a wonderful thing for for our clients and patients. You know, I, I, one of the things that I would probably say in terms of, uh, you know, one way that well, we differentiate between the two is, and this is, might be a little bit old-fashioned, is that a lot of times uh, when we think about the, the major mental illness or the access one disorders, uh, say major depression, bipolar disorder, um, schizophrenia or the psychotic disorders, anxiety disorders, that we're looking at things that we can consider almost kind of 
um, say, endogenous, that, uh, that people really struggle with um, things that, that seem to maybe almost come up uh, uh, w- without really any of necessarily environmental stressors. Um, so we can think about, um, and, and they're oftentimes much more consistent over time. So, for example, with a major depressive episode that people will have difficulties with depression, um, feelings of worthlessness, uh, sadness, uh, feelings of hopelessness, maybe suicidal thoughts, and they're consistent kind of day in, day out, for the great majority of the day. Um, and, and these and that's also true with bipolar disorder that we're really looking at, whether it's mania or depression, that it's actually consistent for quite a few days at a time. Whereas when we think about, say, personality disorders, especially, say, the cluster B disorders, say, uh, histrionic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, that, that we have much more immediate and, and, uh, and quick mood fluctuations. That in, that's often a result of the environment or the situation at the time uh, that it might be due to, that there might be a mood swing due to interpersonal conflict or an argument or something that goes poorly. So, it's, so we often kind of think about those as difficulties responding to the environment. And the but to be very honest, it's it's very difficult to to draw. You know, I think a, a line down the middle and say this is this and this is that, and 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 to uh, be able to have a very clear marking line between the two. You know, what we often will see are people with access one disorders who may have some personality component to it, and then of course we may have individuals with personality disorders who have, as a result, very, very significant mood symptoms uh, that are associated with them, or even what look like brief psychotic symptoms with things like, uh, like borderline personality disorder. Um, so, you know, I think what, what we are able to do, I think, in, in this setting, and I think is, is also something that's important to do in the outpatient setting, is to really take a kind of a, a longitudinal view of what's going on and not just, you know, I think the symptoms of the moment, of the hour of the evaluation, but really kind of think about how functioning has, has kind of gone on for the last, you know, few weeks to a few months. You know, are, are these mood symptoms fairly stable or are they things that are rapidly fluctuating, what, are the, what is associated with the changes, and I think in that way really developing kind of a more kind of holistic view of, um, of where the symptoms are coming from and what might be kind of responsible or kind of feeding or driving them. Well, okay. and it, it's especially challenging because developmentally you may have someone who's 26 or 27 in front of you but they still may be developmentally 16, 18 years old. So those mood swings you were talking about earlier that are normal for that age may in fact be misdiagnosed or mischaracterized as a personality disorder or a mood component when in effect they're developmentally kind of where they should be. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I, I think, uh, you know, one example of this might be, you know, I think... Uh, you know, you'll see high school and, and college-age students who may be, you know, in, in their first romance. And uh, when when that's going well, um, or if they're doing well with their friends, that that everything's great. But uh, when, the, when that, that first romance, that first love, if it doesn't work out, 
that, uh, you know, all is for naught. Uh, you know, it's a sort of kind of tragic um, sense that, you know, kind of feeling of hopelessness that, you know, they're never going to meet someone else like that, that, that everything has kind of lost its meaning, you know, right? And, you know, when we have something like that happen with someone, say, in their, in their 30s or 40s, we start to worry quite a bit more about, you know, things like dependency, maybe borderline personality disorder, um, things like that. But in, in, in a young adult, that's not necessarily uh, inappropriate. You know, I think we worry about it if, if, if the symptoms last for a while, you know, more than, you know, like a week or two, and they don't really bounce back. But, but, uh, but a smaller degree of that, or, you know, a moderate degree of that are, you know, I think developmentally appropriate. I think this also leads into another kind of uh, dilemma that comes up in just the treatment of young adults in general, and uh, which is the idea that, uh, and, and it's kind of it's, it's a pretty old idea, but what you want to do with with individuals when you treat them is to restore them to where they should be developmentally for their age. So you know, in much the same way when you're say doing therapy of the child, that your goal is not to get them to be a, a functioning adult, but to rather get them to uh, where they should be for, say, if they're, if they're latency age or if they're a young adolescent or whatever else. And the same holds true for young adults, that you're not trying to, uh, the goals of the therapy are not necessarily to get them to where they have a, a good view or, or a, a solid footing of what their career is going to be about what their relationship is, and uh, and so on and so forth, but rather to get them to a stage where other young adults are at and should be at. And that might be a point where they are still struggling to some degree with their identity because they still haven't solidified it, that they're still struggling with what so that they're still struggling with uh, what their career choice might be, um, which is perfectly reasonable, but that they're okay with that struggle, that they actually have the resources to continue to kind of think about it, to debate both sides of it, and to get help if needed. We will be right back for our final episode uh, segment with Dr. Paul, where, where we will talk about what are effective treatments for uh, folks with and if there are some treatments that work better than others. And we'll be right back. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. To savor something means to delight in, to absolutely enjoy. So why not savor yourself? Author and internationally acclaimed speaker Doris Smeltzer brings her message to the airwaves with Savor Yourself Beyond Skin Deep. Plan to spend an empowering hour with Doris where you will learn to recognize your worth and your beauty beyond society's limited one-size-fits-all mentality. Savor Yourself with Doris Smeltzer, Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, only on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This afternoon, we're talking with Dr. Edward Poe, the medical director for the Compass Young Adult Program at the Menninger Clinic. And um, Dr. Poe, what are the best forms of treatment for folks this age? Are there evidence-based treatments available? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there, there are quite a few. Um, and, you know, I, I think we could probably spend, boy, you know, I, I think a lot of time talking about, you know, is is kind of a, a psychodynamic approach or experience you know, express a supportive approach or a CBT or DBT-based approach or a 12-step approach. You know, I think, you know, I think all of them have really their own merits and, and, and drawbacks. Um, but I think what's, what's really been shown really robustly in the research over really many years now is that, you know, most of these kind of what we consider therapeutic interventions are all at the, at the biggest I think variable is really the therapeutic alliance that uh, whether it's individual therapy, group therapy, whatever else, that that the ability of the therapist and the patient to develop actually a healthy therapeutic alliance is really, the, I think, the, the most positive prognostic factor in how the therapy will go and how the patient will do. So, you know, I, I think we, we can think about, you know, if someone's coming in with, you know, uh, an anxiety disorder, uh, if they want to go into a, a a CBT-based program if they're having a border, if they're having borderline symptoms into a DBT-based program if they're having other kind of conflicts going to a dynamically-based program, uh, you know I think all these things are, are are reasonable. But I think that the thing to really think about is I think for the young adult patient is that they go into therapy or treatment with someone that they really feel or that they that they either feel allied with that they feel like they can have a good therapeutic rapport with or something they can actually build that alliance with. I think these are things that are, that are actually very important. Um, another thing, we can talk maybe a little more in detail about that, but the other thing I would actually say is that something that we do here on the Compass program is that uh, one of the reasons we made the program is to have them be with their peers. Um, so there's a lot of group therapies where they actually are able to provide support to each other, but also confront each other, call each other out on some of the, the same behaviors or defenses that they see themselves using. And this has been actually, I think, incredibly helpful. And it doesn't have anything to do with a particular uh, style of intervention, but just that, you know, I think 
late adolescents and young adults, they simply hear things better from their peers than they often do from adults. You know, some of this, I think, is, is still, I think, due to the developmental age that they often maybe distrust authority figures. Um, but the fact is, for us, that, you know, we'll, as clinicians, we'll laugh about it quite a bit, that we'll tell our clients the same thing over and over again in every way possible that we can think of, but then they'll go into a group with one of their peers, and their peers will just say the same thing to them, and, and then they'll hear it. Because I think for them, having it come from a peer that they really trust, that they think and they feel is really kind of in the same moment with them, uh, really just hits hits the point for them. And, and they it just feels more genuine, uh, gets more to the core for them. So could you just talk a little bit more specifically about the COMPASS program? You had mentioned that you do longitudinal assessments and that there's a lot of group therapy. Um, could you talk a little bit more about it for our listeners? Yeah. Um, it's a, I mean, one thing I'll say, it's a, it's a terrifically fun program, uh, and, uh, and that's because it's, it's a program that is always constantly evolving, too, because when we started this program about five and a half years ago, there were really very few, if any other programs that really did this, um, you know, because, because of this kind of traditional demarcation between adolescents and adults, uh, there was really no program for for this group. And also, I think to be very straightforward about it, uh, patients or clients in this age range often have a lot of difficulty getting into treatment, uh, whether it's due to resources or whatever else, but also that they weren't really particularly fond of going to treatment. So they might be coming to treatment because of a lot of external pressures. Their, their parents are worried about them, their schools, uh, maybe friends, and so on and so forth. But they often had very little interest in coming in of their own accord at the time. And so as a result, they might have a lot of difficulties behaviorally in programs. So this was a very complex but also at times a difficult population to work with. Um, so as a result, there's, there's really not a lot of you know, prior information or research on just what to do with uh, individuals like this. So you know, one thing that we've learned to do is just to be very adaptable, to really to, – to, to listen to our, our clients as they come in and really kind of think about, to kind of throw some of the old ideas out the window uh, that were kind of tried and true for, let say, older adults, but to be willing to try whatever we needed to to, to build rapport, to build alliances. So that might mean, you know, meeting them where they're at, uh, being willing to tolerate a little bit or at times a lot of irreverence from our uh, clients, um, being willing to uh, share humor with them, to joke around with them, uh, to be able to express a lot of curiosity about what their circumstances are, and then also to, to really be just very open and honest about things, to, to really acknowledge the circumstances within which they might come into treatment, to really kind of build collaborative goals, about goals that they might actually want to achieve versus what other people want them to do, and to really help them think about how they can use treatment. And also to be able to use this as a model for how they might be able to use treatment down the road. So um, what we have here is, is really kind of a, you know, a, kind of a fun, uh, it's not really experimental because I think we've, we've actually done a lot now. We know a lot of what does work, but also a, a very flexible setting uh, where we're, we're really Develop kind of a hopefully a warm 
uh, collaborative uh, treatment with our with our patients and really kind of help promote them starting to make decisions on their own. Uh, this includes, you know, I think providing support and really complimenting them on just being thoughtful, um, that it may not necessarily be what decision they make, but rather that they actually make a decision and actually put thought into it that okay. takes into account their long-term health and, and, and how, to, how it might actually affect them and others. Mm-hmm. How involved are the families with, with uh, these folks? Oh, very, uh, and, 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 and they have to be. Uh, I, mean, I mean, let's let's face it that uh, at this age, uh, they may have uh, a lot of ideas about what they want to do and uh, and uh, what they want and what they don't want, but they often have very little resources uh, to actually do that. So their their families are often kind of the, the gatekeepers in terms of providing support, but also having the key to their resources of them either getting treatment or not. Uh, so we we deal with that. So the parents have to be involved, and then of course, uh, because they're not fully adults, they still rely on their parents quite a bit for support. Um, we also, you know, have to work around issues of if there's enmeshment, or there's too much distance, or unresolved conflicts. And oftentimes, you know, for our young adults, they're not really going to make a lot of progress in therapy unless many of these issues are dealt with. So they're they're, they're absolutely essential, and and and. Whether their parents, you know, I think uh, however much they want to be involved, we also try our best to get them involved. So how would someone contact uh, the COMPASS program if they were interested in learning more or um, coming into treatment? Yeah. Um, I think that the best way is probably to uh, go ahead and contact our admissions department. Uh, you know, our our main number is 713-275-5000. Uh, uh, and uh, that can be reached. We also have an 800 number, which I don't know offhand, but the the best way to find that is just to look at our website, which is www.menninger.edu, and uh, that'll have a lot of information on how to get a hold of us. And do you take insurance, or is it private pay? Uh, we take a combination of both. Uh, actually, a good number of our patients will uh, work out agreements with their uh, insurance companies to pay for at least part of the treatment, if not all of it. Um, and is there any uh, current waiting list? Or uh, it, it depends on the program. Uh, you know, I think uh, most of our programs are really actually in pretty high demand, but we, we do everything we can to get people in as, as soon as possible, as timely way as possible, including shifting beds around if we need to. Um, but uh, we'll do our best to work with people in terms of getting people in as soon as possible. And do you work with people just in Texas or from all over? All over, uh, both all over the United States as well as uh, from other countries. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, this sounds like an amazing program, and I can tell you have a lot of fun there because I can hear it in your voice. So um, I, that's really uh, half the battle, isn't it? This yes. Is what you do and, and who you work with. It is. It's, 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 a, it's an incredible experience for, for me, I think, all the other staff here. It sounds like a wonderful program, and thank you so much for joining us today and helping us learn more about this very challenging group of folks that often get into programs that aren't well designed for them or certainly not able to help them in the way that you're describing. So thank you so much, Dr. Paul. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. 
We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.